Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. This week on A Millennial Mind, I sit down with the multi-talented Mo Vella. Mo was the first Hispanic man to serve two executive roles in the White House as senior advisor to President Joe Biden. He has made a lasting impact on so many people and has been featured in multiple articles and also written his own book. He has recently produced and starred in the show called Unicorn Hunters, which is a show that is hunting the next billion dollar company and a platform that is revolutionizing the investment ecosystem. It is a huge honor for me to have this conversation with him. He has such a positive and infectious energy and this is an episode I really learned so much from. So let's get into it. Hello, Shivani. Welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. It's so good to be here on this rooftop in LA. This is amazing. It really is. The wind is playing havoc with my hair. <laughs> it is really actually playing havoc with mine. <laughs> I wish I knew what that felt like. <laughs> but we have the Hollywood sign just over there. We are in LA and I'm so happy to be with you. So We're happy. literally in Hollywood, we by the way. We literally are. I know. We are sitting in Hollywood. Recording this. Yes. Manifesting amazing? Millennial Mind to be here permanently. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> let's put that out to the universe. Let's. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about you. Oh, my God. Where let's do start you want... from the beginning. Oh, you know, South Texas uh-huh. uh, of a very, very uh, strong Latino cultural upbringing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Latino, Hispanic. For those from other parts of the world, uh, those are those of us, of course, of originally Spain, right? Right. Um, and uh, my ancestry more recently is from Mexico, but I'm a fourth generation Texan. Wow. Or, we, or as we say, Tejano, Tejano, which is a Texan of Mexican heritage, Tejano, right. Mexicano. Right. And so uh, very traditional in some ways. Mm. Uh, you know, that's what I love about other cultures like yours and so many others around the world that, you know, our cultural traditions are so special. They were to us as well, right? Yeah. From food to dance Mm -hmm. to music Mm -hmm. to faith and community and love and, Mm. uh, you know, everything you, uh, that's such an important part of a fabric of who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So growing up in Texas, what was that like? You know, it was, uh, it was an interesting upbringing Uh, in so many ways. I've always been hesitant to talk about the challenges, but I think they're so important to share they are. because I think we all learn from one another. And mm-hmm. hopefully I think uh, by sharing our stories, mm-hmm. uh, maybe somebody might find hope 
yes. or inspiration uh, or, you know, the opportunity to remember that they too can, uh, you know, reach their dreams. So yeah. look, it was fundamentally amazing. Right. I was extremely blessed by the universe mm -hmm. or God or uh, Allah or, uh, you know, whoever, whoever you in, right? Yes. Whatever, whoever you believe in, I was blessed. Um, incredible family filled with an incredible unconditional love. So uh, nice. That's important when mm -hmm. I tell you the rest of the story. But uh, suffice it to say that at the, the age of seven, uh, I knew I had a little secret. And right. I have an autobiography out on Amazon. It's called mm -hmm. Little Secret, Big Dreams. Nice. The subtitle's called Pink and Brown in the White House. Wow. Right? Okay. So what's the little secret? I don't think it's 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 that not that it's not that discreet. <laughs> I'm I'm gay. I've been an openly gay man uh, since uh, the age of about 22, and I'm now 60. Right. Um, but the first 19, 20 years, uh, I was not uh, able to live openly. Right. Uh, Texas, machismo in the Hispanic community, uh, cowboy mentality of mm -hmm. Texas, mm -hmm. a Catholic, right. the son of a very very prominent family from a leadership perspective in the south texas so i call it the perfect storm in my book yeah kind of mm -hmm. and I, there are millions of mo's around the world who for whatever reason whether it be uh their ancestry or heritage whether it be their accent right. whether it be because they're too they're a little chubby or too skinny mm -hmm. or they have black hair or brown hair or no hair right. whatever the reason is uh i in a very real uh, way understand feeling disenfranchised um voiceless mm. um very much isolated um and so it was a rough childhood yeah. from that perspective mm -hmm. but it was the unconditional love of my family that kept me alive frankly and kept you going kept me going so how did you transition from texas yeah. to being in the white house well you know there were a lot of steps i don't get to tell this part very often <laughs> actually i don't think anybody's asked me in years oh, wow. uh i i on this very day that we are doing this podcast from hollywood california mm -hmm. uh i just was sent and you were in my presence when I was sent a picture of a, the billboard in Times Square in New York City. And my picture is in Times Square today it's crazy. Uh, because I'm part of a show called Unicorn Hunters. And uh, and we launched our own cryptocurrency called Unicorn. Right. Okay. And it's on the NASDAQ billboard today. So how do you get from somebody just wrote me five minutes ago before we started taping and said, you finally made it on Broadway, <laughs> right? <laughs> how do you go from my little South Texas imprisoned right. environment yes. to the White House? Not once, but twice, I might add, and proudly. Mm. Um, but I tried to make it on Broadway when I was 24. Okay. That was the first time I came out. Really? And it took, I graduated from the University of Texas. I had one foot out of the closet mm -hmm. during the University of Texas. What does that mean, one foot? Well, it means that I was out to some people but not to everybody okay right um you know i i i chose to come out in um i i always give people advice when they ask me when yeah. how do you how do i come out i mm. say you've got to make sure you're ready right because if you're not ready mm. someone's gonna stump you with a question and it's gonna make Kill you yeah. yeah it's gonna push yeah. you oh. back 
yeah. three steps forward, two steps back. Right. So I said, be ready. And I, I waited till I was ready every time okay. on every person that I came out to in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, I waited till I was, I felt self-confident yes. enough and prepared mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Questions and, you know, and there are lots of questions. Yes. My father's no longer with us, but uh, I remember when I came out to dad, I think that was the scariest, most worrisome for me. Okay. Um, a man, a Hispanic man of his generation, mm. uh, you know, a, a war veteran, right. uh, served in the United States military. And I was a little bit, uh, uh, not a little, a lot concerned. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, it was interesting. He was a judge and he was an attorney. And when I came out to him, he pondered right. and he got really silent. And I thought, oh, shoot. Mm. Right actually thought something a little worse than that but for the podcast it's oh shoot uh, uh, and uh he looked at me and his first question shivani was uh what's it like to kiss a man right. when you expected it was going to be like how did you become this yes. how, what happened what did we do wrong that's always a question actually isn't it and why is that why is it like where did you learn this from? yes uh why did you choose yes. to be this way yes um you know what did we do that influenced oh, you? Oh, yes, that's the big one. And I, and I still think it's really dominant at the moment. You see, I have heard a lot of parents saying, like, don't let him watch that because he may learn, learn oh, yeah, it. Yeah. Why is that? I, I think it's because people are scared of what they don't know. I think we innately as humans, we fear what we don't understand. Right. Right? So true. And so if uh, being gay or lesbian or trans gender for that matter um is introduced into your ecosystem or your life Mm -hmm. and it's foreign to you Mm -hmm. your first question i think is naturally as a parent in particular Mm -hmm. i i really understood i i I still understand at this point in my life that the first question a parent is going to ask because of fear right because of their own insecurity right their own reticence Mm -hmm. their own lack of awareness maybe Mm -hmm. And maybe their lack of exposure to yes. this topic. Their first question is going to be, what did I do? Yes. Right? Like, did I let you play with dolls? Did I? And yes. the irony of the whole thing is none of this has any, as we all know. Yes. None of it has anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was gay when I came out of my mother's womb. Yeah. Uh, she's now 89. We just celebrated. You met her this yes. weekend in Las Vegas. <laughs> we just celebrated her 89th birthday. And she now asks everybody she meets, do you have a gay child? <laughs> Because she's convinced that everybody should have one. Because <laughs> you dress her so well, right? <laughs> I dress her right, but, but you know, I think what you know, it took it takes time for people to understand what is foreign to them. Okay. I can I can relate to it in so many other ways and on so many other topics, mm, right? Absolutely, things that are foreign to me. Frankly, I've never been with a woman, mm, so it's foreign to you. Yes, of course. Now I ask a ton of questions. <laughs> I know. I know you do, Mo. <laughs> Some probably would be considered inappropriate. Especially for the podcast. <laughs> We're not going there. But but I ask a lot of questions. So mm-hmm. I, I, I really think that in answering those questions, Shivani, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's how we educate each other. I agree. And how we evolve, mm-hmm. how we grow. And how we understand from different perspectives. Absolutely. No doubt about it. So going back to the question of how you got from Texas to the White House. Yeah, so look, I tried to make it start? on Broadway because it was my first chance to be who I really was, right? Right. Somehow Broadway seems safe for gays. I yes. know that's shocking. I know, I know. But I get you. I actually kind of, I kind of get I that. I think the West End is the same, right? It is. <laughs> uh, look, theater, uh, you know, the industry, uh, uh, you know, it's always been a safe haven for gays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I took advantage of that. I had always aspired. Right. I tried to make it in New York. That I uh, did telemarketing, telesales okay. to try right. to make ends meet, take some voice classes, some dance lessons, uh-huh. acting classes. Anyway, as, as you can tell, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went back home, went to law school because right, I'm yes. the seventh lawyer in the family. Which is crazy. Um, and it was, um, I kind of knew the whole time I was in law school that I wasn't going to really practice. But that I was also, me. You too, that right? Was me. Okay. I was like, I hate this. Yeah. I'm not good at it. Yeah. And it's just not natural for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I had to work really, really, me really too. hard me too. to just get by. Yeah. And, you know, I just feel like, I don't know if you were an argumentative kid growing up, but I was. Like, I, I still kind of am. I'm always like, but why? Tell yeah. me the reason. Well, I just feel I'm someone who really needs to understand the logic behind things. Yeah, me too. And, like, the rationale and the reasoning. And I think because of that, my parents are like, you should be a lawyer. Yeah, go lawyer. Yeah. Be a lawyer. But when you're doing something like law, you have to really love it, I think, to pursue it. And I just I did that's it. right. I, 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 we have the exact same story. Right? But you know well, what? I'm going to be on the, 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 you're gonna the, be on on Times the Square. Next show. This is yes. going to be me on Times yes. Square. We have the same story. You, you want to know what I've always thought about when I re- recall this, that uh-huh. you and I share this, right? Uh-huh. Is that what do you call the last person in your law school class? I don't know. A lawyer. Oh yeah, a lawyer. So then when I realized, well, I'm gonna be the I'm gonna be one just like the guy that's number one yes. in the class or the lady that was number one. I was like, the hell with this. I'm, I get it. I'll just make it through. And then uh that's frankly, so I yeah, that's absolutely. So true. What do you call the first guy or girl in the doctor in the medical school? It's the a doctor, doctor the same as the last one. Yeah. And so you know, I just did the best I could. I yeah. knew it wasn't gonna be for me. Mm-hmm. But and the reason I share it was because it's an important part, I think, of how I ended up in the White House, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, what really happened was when I was six years old, I sang a campaign commercial for one of the presidents of the United States called Lyndon Baines Johnson. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. and my mother played the piano, and there was a commercial that I ran all over my home state of Texas. I think it was six or seven. And, and you need to uh, see a video of that. <laughs> I, we've been looking for it. No. We've been looking for it. We can't find it. Oh, God. But, yeah, we're trying to look for it. We even we'll called the it. TV station to try to get it oh, and my see God. if it was in the archives. But, yeah, I started in politics when I was that big. My family's very involved in politics. Mm-hmm. My cousin just finished being the United States congressman. Oh, my My gosh. uncle was the United States federal district judge. My father oh, was wow. the Cameron County judge. And so long line of polit- political, public service, mm-hmm. community oriented. Um, so I knew that's why I needed to do it. And mm-hmm. then uh, I kept volunteering in political stuff. And lo and behold, in 1993, uh, Bill, a man named Bill Clinton became president of the United States. And vice president was a man named Al Gore. Mm-hmm. And long and short of it is I got a phone call from my political network right. saying, would you like to come serve in the Clinton administration? And so I said, oh I would God. be honored. It would be a dream come true. Yes. So I went and started at the United States Department of Agriculture. Can you believe this? <laughs> they send the gay 
tub of guide to the <laughs> agriculture department. And the reason was that my uncle at the time was a member of Congress right. from my home area, and he was chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. So right. they thought if we send the nephew to see the uncle, right. maybe he'll give us the budget we want. Okay. Really? Yeah, for real. And we go to the first meeting on Capitol Hill in the United States Congress, and we go. I'm with eight people from the Department of Agriculture, and we're in there talking to the chairman, my uncle. And he says in his very heavy Mexican accent, if you think bringing my nephew to the meeting is going to help you, you are wrong, he says. And all the blood left my head. And I'm like, I know, exactly. That was exactly my thought. I'm getting fired. Like I lasted 20 days or something in D.C. And, uh, and anyway, I didn't get fired. And then fast forward one night, a bunch of political colleagues that were all appointed at other agencies across the federal government, we all got together to have, you know, some uh, pints, as y'all would say, right? Pints. Right, a beer, <laughs> right? And so we're throwing back some beer. And one young lady at that, e- that gathering says, my Aunt Patsy, now this was a woman named Patsy Thomason. Uh, she's a dear friend of mine to this day. She grew up with the Clinton, with Bill Clinton in, our, in, Little, in Hope, Arkansas. And she ran, she was the director of administration at the White House. Right. Her niece says at this gathering, my Aunt Patsy says, and they have the big Arkansas <laughs> accent, and she said, my Aunt Patsy says that Vice President Gore is looking for some help at the White House. Right. They're looking for a lawyer type. You're like, that's me. And that's why I had to tell you the lawyer stuff, because oh that I was drunk enough to say, I'm a lawyer type, <laughs> right? And, and she said, well, send me your resume. Wow. And I got home at midnight that night. I was a little tipsy. And, and, and had this extra little self-confidence for some reason because of the beer. Right. And I sent my resume. Next day, I get a phone call from the White House, from the chief of staff to the vice president of the United States. Right. Mr. Vela, would you please, can you come in tomorrow at such and such time? I'd like to interview you. <gasps> We were, we're looking for somebody to borrow, right, uh, for six months. Right. And I need somebody to come in and help my CFO. Uh, we're, we're backlogged and some things, right? Some yeah. filing and data and whatever. And I went that two days later, interviewed, who is, ironically, a man named Ron Klain, who is today the chief of staff to the president. Oh, my gosh. And he was chief of staff to the vice president. And he interviewed you. And he interviewed me and uh, hired me on the spot and asked oh me God. if I would give six months of time in the White House. I did that. And what does that involve, giving six Well, in that particular time? time, in that role, I was, like, asked to, okay, I don't, you know, I, I don't know who's going to watch this podcast. So I have to be a little <laughs> careful here. I was asked to assist the existing senior staff member that handled the finances and the budget Mm -hmm. and all the management and administration of the office of the vice president. Okay. And let's just suffice it to say that I would have to wait till he would leave. And at five, I would close the door and put the chair underneath because I was asked to audit all of the files to bring them up to date, right? Right. To, To make sure that they were... Uh, you know, as wholesome mm-hmm. as they were supposed to be, mm-hmm. that we had been, that they had been paying their bills and right. invoices. Mm-hmm. And so I went to law school because there was no math. 
So the thought that I was going to do an audit of anything oh my God. was nothing short of a like disaster, <laughs> nightmare, or miracle, whatever, however you look at it. And I would literally just stay there till midnight every night. Oh my God. And I went, we had, well, we didn't have databases and all no. this online. I would literally open hard copy files one at a time. And I did that for five months. I reinvented their entire system. I audited every document and every file came up. I have no clue to this day how I came up with a new way to do everything, a more efficient way. Uh, I changed the entire processes and operations and uh, the six months were up and I was having to go back to agriculture. And I got a, I got a call from Mr. Klain saying the vice president would like to see you in the West wing. Okay. So I am shaking like a what have I I'm, done? I'm 32 years old. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, I, I'm so glad I get to at least go thank him for this yes. incredible privilege. I went over to the West Wing of the White House. I Describe went in, it for me, actually. What is the West Wing of the White House like? Well, it's 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 very fascinating because it's a bunch of offices. Okay. And they're very small. Okay. Because at some point, as over the last several decades of time, uh, when the White House was built, mm-hmm. right, there were not many folks at office there. So it was very, very large office spaces over the last 60, 70 years. Right. Staffs grew and grew and grew Mm -hmm. and the president's staff grew and grew Mm -hmm. and grew. So they kept like creating small little offices. (laughs) So it's a really, it's a series of a lot of small little, almost cubicle feeling. Right. Fascinating. There are a few corner offices okay. with like, like the vice president's office is yes. large, obviously the Oval obviously. Office yes. that we've all seen in movies and TV, yes. obviously stunning. Uh, but honestly, it's it's kind of surprising. It's a bunch of small yeah. little offices and a lot of people milling around because it's it's a working office. Yes. And it's people, just like a normal it office. Is, right. It is. Uh, people are going to get coffee. People need to go meet with somebody. They're all milling around. Mm-hmm. It's very much very normal office space in that sense. Okay. You cannot, of course, avoid the historical impact, mm. the incredible context, right, right of mm-hmm. where you're standing at yes. all times. Yes. Uh, what an incredible uh, moment in the sense of uh, perspective of American history. So all of those things are there too, of course, and those feelings. Yeah. So I go over, Vice President Gore opens his door. He says, sit down. I sit down on a couch. And I said, Mr. Vice President, I, I'm so glad you called me over here. I wanted to thank you for this privilege, mm-hmm. this incredible honor. Uh, I'm a gay, chubby, bald, ugly boy from South Texas. Wasn't <laughs> supposed to have this chance. That was exactly what I said to him. And he looked at me and he goes, whoa, 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 right? He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And he goes, no, I didn't call you over here for you to thank me. He said, I called you over here for me to thank you. Oh. And I said, what? And he goes, I want to thank you for what you've done. I have been made aware of everything you've done. And he said, but more importantly, I'd like to ask you, would you consider staying on as my next chief financial officer and my senior advisor on Hispanic and LGBTQ policy matters? Oh, my And I literally, Shivani, much like I'm doing now, got emotional. Yeah. Because it was a moment of affirmation for me that, frankly, I never knew. I I didn't know if I would ever have that moment on Mm -hmm. my journey. If you go back and remember what the first 18, 19 years were like, right? 
kind of being told you were going to burn in hell, that you weren't equal, that you weren't worthy, that you didn't really have a rightful place at the table of life. Um, society was telling me that and um, my religion and, uh, you know, my uh, community and yeah. so on and so forth, cultural traditions mm-hmm. uh, and just America in general at that time. And so for the vice president of the United States. To recognize that oh and then God. want your advice to make oh. sure nobody goes through what it you kind of went through. Changed my life. That's amazing. I always say that that was my life altering moment and I give Al Gore the credit for it. That's really amazing. Do. Yeah, I can see you getting teary because it's so yeah. Moving. I get teary. Uh, I just think of all the kids around the world who are suffering. Who, again, not just because of who they love mm-hmm. or who they are, but maybe because of who they, how they look or yeah. where they're from or their country mm-hmm. code or their zip code or their area code or their so accent true. or that their parents are poor mm-hmm. or rich or yeah. rural or urban, and so I get teary eyed because. I just believe in the underdog and I'm just really blessed that I had that moment on my journey. But I also, people ask me, well, what, not everybody's going to have that moment. That's right. That's right. I'm realistic. Not everybody's going to have their, their Al Gore moment. Right. But, but what I say to them is create that moment. I agree. Right? I feel like everybody can we have can that, moment, that moment, right? Can. You can, your actions really determine like where you want to get to. Absolutely. And you know, I always say like, there's one person that you need to like notice you to shape your life, yeah. to believe in you, yeah. but you can be that person absolutely. for yourself. Absolutely. Right? It's got to be you it's for you. It's got to be you for you. I, I absolutely believe that. And, and I think, you know, you and I were saying over lunch, I said mm-hmm. to you, one of my favorite things that I use as a mantra in my daily life even today, uh, as I am on a hit yes. reality television show, and you know, we just launched our own cryptocurrency. Yes, and it's like you know, I just look at all these things, and they're like, I sit there and I just remind myself every day two things: one, live in gratitude. Yes, the fact yes. that we just woke up. Yes, I'm just profoundly grateful. Right, just grateful, grateful to just be here with you. Yeah, be present, be in this moment. Mm-hmm. By the way, moment for all of you watching and listening. Moment is spelled M O E M E N T. But the other lesson that I've learned that I try to remind myself every day is that we have the power of choice. Right, we were talking about yes, that. Yes, we lunch, just right? talked about that. The choice. To decide that how we are going to react to how anybody, what anybody says to us, right. how anybody treats us, mm-hmm. right? But back to what you just said, mm-hmm. you make that choice. You make it. That right. you are going to make, create that moment for yourself. That's a choice. So when you were going through this really hard time when you were younger, yeah, how did you choose to not let those emotions override that moment, I guess? Because, you know... I think when you're in a really low place, yeah. you just don't see yourself getting out. And we were talking about this. I yeah. think right now we have a lot more accessibility to listening to a podcast or watching a movie or calling up a friend. Yeah. But when you were in Texas in the 1970s, right? Yeah. You didn't have those resources. No. So how did you navigate out of those tough times? Well, I didn't. The fact of the matter is that I didn't. Right. I did. Eventually. Oh, yes. Eventually. Yes. But I didn't. Uh, and I don't lie to people about this because I think there are people that may watch your podcast who have either experienced something similar mm-hmm. or God forbid they may in the future. And so, look, I didn't. The fact of the matter is that I lived with this very severe anxiety from having this 
deep, dark secret, mm -hmm. right? And that anxiety was percolating and it was building and mm -hmm. it was like a volcano. It was like lava in a volcano. Mm -hmm. In fact, in my book, in my autobiography, I, I say in hindsight that it was like when my mother would drop me off at school or my mom, my mom. Uh, <laughs> it was as if she was throwing an island into the middle of the ocean. Right. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was the only one with this secret. Right. Did and no it, one got you. Nobody. Mm -hmm. I couldn't say anything about it. I couldn't tell anybody about it. I couldn't express it. I couldn't live it. I couldn't be it. Right. So I was in this, in, I was in this prison. Mm -hmm. I was shackled. My spirit was shackled. Mm -hmm. And it resulted in an unfortunate diagnosis by our family pediatrician. Right. Because of the time period in the United States in the early 70s, where homosexuality was still viewed as a mental illness by the American Medical Association, the, our pediatrician backslash child psychiatrist mm -hmm. would never think about diagnosing anything to do with being of gay. Course. Gay wasn't even in our vernacular. Uh, he diagnosed separation anxiety. And he said the only cure was to take me and remove me from my family at the age of 11. And I'm very blessed because, honestly, um, I probably would say 50-50 chance that I, that I would still be traumatized from that at this point in my life. I was just going to ask you, do you feel resentment towards your parents because of Oh, that? my God, that's a great question. Um, very few people have the insight to ask that question. Um, I don't. Uh, in my book, I write about this at length. Mm -hmm. uh, as you saw this weekend, I'm very close to my mother. Yeah. Uh, I have never held any resentment or anger toward my parents because I knew I knew then and I know now that they were doing what they thought was best, right? Wow. They truly wanted to uh, help me and they I didn't just... know how, right? And so That's we always go to our mm -hmm. medical professionals and we trust them. Yes. Right. Who did I did? Re who do I resent? And I say this that in the doctor. book. Yeah. Yeah. That doctor. So as far as I'm no, concerned, I, I hope he's like in the throes of hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay with saying that. Uh, I'm not. I don't hold that resentment today. <laughs> but I, I, you know, he's hopefully he's burned. But, but you know, it, it it resulted in me being taken away from my family, sent away six hours to a mental hospital for children oh that shared God. a wing with adults. And I, every morning, Shivani, I would wake up and I'd come out of my door, 11 years old, mind you, and I'd look down at the end of the hallway and I'd see adults getting electric shock treatment. Oh, my god! At 11. At 11. That's crazy. Well, it could have damaged me forever. Could have right. ruined my entire journey. And um, I think it's amazing yeah. that you don't have any resentment towards your I parents. don't. I really don't. I feel that's a really interesting topic now because I think especially in our generation, yeah. there is a difference in what we think we should do and what our parents think we should do. Yeah. I guess that's with every generation, yeah. but ours especially because so much has changed for millennials, right? Yeah. Like the internet has come out. We have well, more yeah. access to everything. Information. And so much all, information. Everything. everything. So it's really interesting that in that moment when you're 11 years old, you have that level of empathy and understanding to think they're doing the right thing for me. Never, Why did I you never, feel that? I don't know. Honestly, I, I have to think that a lot of it had to do with our culture. Mm -hmm. Right? Latinos tend to be, we wear a heart on our sleeve. We tend to be disproportionately compassionate, I think. <laughs> yeah. Warm. Yes. You know, and it comes down to the unconditional love you said, Absolutely. Right? That's what all that's all I was 
shown. Right. So when they did that, it could never have meant that they were doing it to no, hurt you. No, You were just like, this is no, how they love me. No, and, I, and they would have never done it to try to change me either. Right. I really believe I that. that. I believe that with every ounce of my being. Mm. Um, and, and look, you asked how do you deal with all those emotions. I do want to make sure we tell the entire story here. Yeah. By the time I was 17, I got to a very conflicted point in my life where I had become an all-star football player. I was a very, very, very uh, successful athlete. I did everything a Texas boy is supposed to do. I went hunting and fishing. (laughs) And as I said to you at lunch, I loved it all. (laughs) That was the irony. And I was good at it all, which is crazy. (laughs) But I just, I loved it all. But the locker room became too difficult, not from a sexual perspective, from a, uh, my secret was just, it was such a reminder Mm. every millisecond of Mm. time, right, of my secret. And I just thought I was at a breaking point. And so um, I quit football. And four football players um, turned on me the next morning, the very next morning after I quit. They had been my friends since I was a child. And they started calling me a faggot. And for, for the for the Brits, that's a poof, yeah, right? Um, between my classes, in the hallways, for all of my fellow students to hear. And this occurred in my life for six months. So and tough. I just finally broke. Yeah. Uh, and at this about six months, I was 17. I went home to our hunting cabinet, pulled out one of my father's pistols, and I went to the garage put the pistol to my head and I realized that I thought at that point it would just be easier mm-hmm. to just maybe let's just end this one and hopefully I just start another journey right mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the way I was thinking and uh, I had a moment of clarity right it saved my life I'm not suggesting everyone will have that moment of clarity at that moment mm-hmm. but I did and I'm, I feel blessed for it um, I just thought to myself if I pull this trigger I won't know why I was put here. I don't know who put me here, Yeah. but I won't know why. Mm-hmm. And I just decided, maybe it was selfish, I guess. Yeah, I'm gonna figure but it out. But I wanna stay here and find why the heck I was put on here. <laughs> right? And um, and then went on to make American history. You did. Right, with two tenures in the White House. As the first Hispanic. First Hispanic and, and first gay American to serve twice in the White House. I Absolutely did have the so. privilege of returning back to be Deputy Chief of Staff of Management for then Vice President Joe Biden, who's currently our president. And I fell in love with the Biden family. And yes. they're very dear and close to me to this day. Um, it was a privilege to serve as my country a second time, to serve with him uh, and so many amazing colleagues. Um, and then uh, here I am, here we are in Hollywood, <laughs> right? And uh, I guess I was quoted in a LGBT newspaper about six months ago, right. interviewed about the show, Unicorn yes. Hunters, that I co-created and co-executive produced and co-star in. And uh, I think I was quoted as saying, have you ever met a gay man who didn't come out of his mother's womb looking for a camera? <laughs> so Hollywood, for me, is like the culmination of... <laughs> it's like... Camera, lights, <laughs> camera, action, right? Absolutely. And it was a, it's the last dream. Mm-hmm. It was, it literally is my, it was my last dream. And you're living it. And I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> I am, and it's not about fame and it's no. not about becoming any some 
type of celebrity or anything like that because I'm mm. not that. Um, honestly, it's because it's a platform and a medium that you can tell a story that can change lives Mm -hmm. that can impact the world and unicorn hunters is doing doing that that. and Mm -hmm. that is just freaking amazing when you think about it did you feel you couldn't do that in the white house though oh no i felt every day i could you could oh absolutely i was so blessed to be in two white houses that affirmed me for who i was who celebrated me as a gay man and as a latino wow every minute of every day i felt welcomed respected celebrated loved absolutely that's interesting you were the first Oh, I was the first to do it twice. Oh, I see. Okay. First okay. to do it twice. Yeah. So do you feel people at the moment uh, would be welcomed if they were part of the LGBT community? Oh, there are tons of LGBTQ uh, staff members right now in the Biden White House. They're in every role and every category and <laughs> every division and every agency. So there's Absolutely. no discrimination. You didn't face Not any... under a Democratic administration. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to waste one second of your podcast talking about the previous president. Neither. I have uh, <laughs> no respect for him whatsoever. Not one iota of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I cannot say the same for their administration because I have too many stories of people who were discriminated against, mm-hmm. including for gender, including for orientation including for uh, gender identity um, and ethnicity. So uh, I don't want to waste time talking about them. I like to think about the positive in the future. (laughs) But what would you say to people who are facing discrimination at the moment, whether that's in their workplace or it's at home or it's at school? What advice would you give to them? We have to, absolutely have to believe in ourselves. We cannot let anybody or anything around us right determine who we are right it really yes is it tough at times yes if you're being discriminated against it do you fear losing your job mm. yes all those things are real and i'm not diminishing right any of that right it's all very real i get it but at the end of the day you still got to go home and say i'm not letting that horrible hateful boss uh-huh. i'm not letting that discriminatory person Right? Determine my happiness. Yes. I, what do we say? Power of choice. Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose to disregard them. Right. Now, if it means I have to go look for another job, you know what? There are a lot of resources, Shivani, all (laughs) over the internet. Right? Yeah. For women, for gays, for for Mm -hmm. Indian heritage, people of Indian heritage, people of Latino heritage. There are many resources around the world. We, let's go use our resources, get the heck out of there. And go find a place where you're going to be loved and respected, mm. right? I always tell people, if someone's discriminated against you, there's not much positive in it. But there is something positive. At least I know who doesn't like me. Exactly. Exactly. Right? I completely At least agree. I, know. Uh, I, want, I know this is not on crypto, but please allow me to share this. Because sure. I know that you are focused on helping empowering in millennials around yes. the world. And I want to say this, because I get the asked by, by millennials I try to give as many speeches a year as I, mm-hmm. I can still. And many of them are to millennials on right. university campuses in particular. And I get asked inevitably at everyone by millennials in particular, how do you get to the White House? How do you have a career like yours? How uh-huh. do you write? And, and I always say to me, it doesn't matter what career choice you make. It doesn't matter what. The key is to be flexible. Uh-huh. And to remain 
available and open to what the universe puts mm-hmm. on your path. Because I see so many people be very myopic. Yes. And this is going to be the path and this yes. is it. Yes. Right? And yes. then they wonder why they didn't get there. I'm like, because life doesn't work that way. It doesn't. So and be it... flexible yes. and adjust. And be open. I don't know if you've heard this Absolutely. phrase. Um, it was in the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And Will Smith's son says to him, um, he tells him a story. He says, this guy was in a desert. And, uh, so, and he said, um, I don't need anyone to save me because God is going to save me. Uh. So someone comes along and says, hey, do you want some water? And he goes, no, I don't need you to save me. God is going sa- to save me. Right. Someone else comes along with a car. And he's like, do you need a ride? And he's like, nope, I don't need you. God is going to save me. So he dies. Yeah. Goes to heaven. And he says to God, why don't you save me? He's like, I sent you two people. Ah. But you were so focused on yes. only God is going to save me. You, you didn't see that the other people were actually there to help you. Yes. And that's the story, Brilliant. right? It's like we yes. often don't see the other opportunities that are happening. Yes. And I truly believe in the power of manifestation. The, there is a word in, and I am embarrassed that I don't know whether it's Hebrew or Yiddish. Okay. But it is my second favorite word ever. What is my it? My first favorite word is love. My second favorite word is beshert. <laughs> And it's B-E-S-H-E-R-T. I believe there may be any E on the end. Okay. Beshert means when it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Those two people in your story that you just, example you just gave, were meant to be put on his path. Yes, to help he him. He wasn't open and he wasn't being aware. Mm. Right? And so to me, it's about being open. Right. right? Open to what is it? Where's my next Beshert moment? That's yes. what I say every yes. day. I say every, like when Nick came on the show, right? Mm-hmm. On Unicorn Hunters. That to me was a Beshert moment, right. right? Because I knew that I was meeting a new little young brother, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we become very close friends, right? Yes. And I have the privilege of being on, on his board of directors. And and then look, that Beshert moment led to the Beshert moment of mm. meeting you, mm. right? And all of these are Beshert moments if we're open to them. Yes. And, right? And so I just want to close out this whole thing about what I say to millennials. There's one more word mm-hmm. that I really think we all need to adopt, and that's the word is pivot. <laughs> right? When you say that, it just reminds you of that Friends episode when Walt is <laughs> saying pivot. Have you seen it? No, no. Oh, my God. You need to watch it. <laughs> like, sorry. Is it on. maybe a different context? I don't Very know. Very different context. Okay, okay. He's moving a sofa. <laughs> oh, got it. Got it. I say pivot in the sense of being available and ready and equipped and prepared to pivot. Right. Right. When it comes to career. Right. Because, look, had I not been open to pivoting that night Yes. when she said, my Aunt Patsy's looking for a lawyer type. type. Yes. Right. Had I not been open to pivot, I would have just gone, oh, I don't think I can do that. Exactly. I'm not capable or qualified or whatever. I don't want to do math. Exactly. I don't want to go in that exactly. department. It's I didn't ask why. Yes. My first Broadway audition in New York when I tried to make it on Broadway at the age of 24, mm-hmm. they said, do you play the guitar? I never picked up a guitar in my life. I said, I sure do. And I went home and learned four chords. So when I auditioned the next day, I knew, knew four, how to play. four chords. That's yeah. amazing. But, you know, I really do feel like a lot of millennials, because everything we get is so instant. 
we think there's one way to get there, right? So that's really yeah. why you get asked that question is, how do I get your career? How do I follow that path? Because exactly. there's this like blueprint, but there isn't. It's about this grit. Path, that's right. It's about persistence. It's about grabbing those opportunities when you can, yeah. instead of being scared Absolutely. of them. Right? Like you could have in that moment been a bit scared. Of or, course, you know, and I was, by the way. Exactly. Absolutely was. And, and I, I don't know what, how to equate it into the United Kingdom, but I would imagine it would be like, uh, being summoned to Buckingham Palace, right? Mm. To, to to work around the Queen, Her Majesty, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you, every country or every region of the world probably has their equivalence to that moment when you're invited to go right. to, you know, the seat of our our the, the, our democracy. So you believe in faking it till you make it. Uh, I hate that phrase. <laughs> I hate it too. It feels I, so I false, really, doesn't I, it? I'll tell you why I hate it. Because I'm so passionate about authenticity. Yeah. Like, you see, I did not not cry in your podcast. Mm -hmm. Because if that's what I was feeling, that's what I'm going to live. Yeah. Uh, I I don't play any games with people. What you see is what you get. Yeah. Right? You are Um, like that. You are the same person. Well, when that day Al Gore offered me that job was the day, I'm not kidding you, at the age of 33, I think I was on that day, I realized I was never, ever, ever again not going to be me. I love that. And if somebody didn't like it or that's they couldn't love me or respect me, then to hell with them. Yeah. That's all I don't want them on my journey then anyway. Right. Really. Um, I'll tell you a story about unicorn hunters on this topic. When we taped the first episode, mm-hmm. first season, I, I mean, this was like, I was like a kid in a candy store, right? Yeah. And our executive producer, our technical executive producer is a man named Craig Plestes. Okay. And he's like considered one of the gods of unscripted reality television in America. Right. Like The Apprentice, Biggest Loser, okay. America's Got Talent, you name him. And now he's our executive producer. We're such an honor to have him. We tape, we get ball break, go to our trailers mm-hmm. to go rest, to get ready for the next set, uh, episode taping. And I have a knock on my trailer door, and it's Craig Plusty's. And now Craig and I have been friends for six years at this point. And he knocks on the door. He comes in. He says, can I come in? I said, of course. He comes in. He closes the door. He sits down. He goes, no, never again. And I said, oh, my God, what did I do? Uh Right? Like, I'm like, what happened? He goes, that was not the Mo I love and know. Right. That was the Mo that you thought they, they wanted to hear and see. Yes. And I I said, do not ever do that on a set with me again. And I say that to your audience because we were just talking about authenticity. And being who you are. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if somebody doesn't want to watch because that's who you are, then mm-hmm. don't watch. Right. Right? I love that. We have 7 million viewers. There were 7 million people that were okay with it. Yep. <laughs> Hopefully by the end of next year, we'll have 20 million. <laughs> exactly. Right? But but the point is uh, that we should all be committed to authenticity, transparency, mm-hmm. to keep it real. I, I say keeping it real. And stop trying to be who everyone else wants us you to want be. What you to be? Because you don't feel good when you no, do that either. No, no. And you're faking. That's why I don't like it. Fake it till you make, make it. it. <laughs> that's, that's how this all started, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't, that's why I don't like the phrase because yeah. I don't, there's never a time to fake it, honestly. Right. There's never a time to no. Yeah. No, if I get Mr. Mister Gay America, I will cry, like, for real. <laughs> oh, no. How about sweet. Mr. Gay Bear America? How's that? <laughs> you know what a bear is? No. Okay, so in the gay community, 
A bear is a chubby, beefy, hairy guy. Okay. Yes. So, so you want that? I'm a bear. <laughs> You're I'm a bear. bear. <laughs> I'll take Mr. Gay Bear America 2022. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll crown you with an award. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get a tiara at some point. <laughs> well, honestly, it's been my pleasure to have you. Um, I'm so grateful we got to have this opportunity to I speak. I am as well. And I know we're going to have so many more. I hope so. We are. I, I don't know that your audience wants me back, but they will. if you'll have me back, I'm back. <laughs> Any day. Well, thank you. Thank you. No, thank and it's good to have you in America. Come back. I will do. Okay. I'm going to move here. <laughs> I hope you do. You, we're waiting for you. How's that? Exactly. Right here in Hollywood. <laughs> I feel okay. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Wherever you're listening or watching, if you could press the like, follow and subscribe button, it would mean the world to me.